Hey true crime friends, I'm Danny and I'm Brenna and, and this is Law Ghost Stories. Today's episode contains graphic information that some listeners may find disturbing. Listeners discretion is advised. Today's story is one that I should not have to tell, but if that was the case, we would not have a podcast. Am I right, Brenna? Yeah, unfortunately so. Yes. Today's episode does come with a trigger warning as we will be talking about sexual assault, so please be advised as we continue through this episode that there are moments that are hard to talk about and hear, but I feel like it's appropriate to share this case with you as April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. With that, let's get started. I will tell you two stories about two women that were tied to a much bigger case that were handled very, very differently. Now let's get started with Miss Marie Adler in Lenwood, Washington. Marie was in and out of foster care most of her life. In fact, in 2008, she was living in a group home to transition from living with one of her many foster care families as now she was 18 and heading out into adulthood. Do we know why she was in foster care? Was her parents not around or? I don't think her parents had a solid background. I'm not sure if they had passed away or if she was taken. I do know though she was very extensive in the system in and out of foster care for sure. Although Marie did have a couple of foster care mothers that she still kept in contact with from time to time and checked in with, one of them being her last foster mother, Judith, and the other, Colleen, who, in fact, was one of her favorites, if you can have a favorite of something like that. Unfortunately, she did because she was in that situation. I will say she was moved from Colleen's care for no other reason than that Colleen and her husband had already had too many kids, but they actually stepped up to help her transition out to help Marie find a more permanent situation. Oh, that is good. Do you know how many kids they had, though? Um, I'm not sure if there is different regulations within each state or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, just most of my references referred that she had too many kids at the time. So she was able to do that emergency situation, but she wasn't able to stay more long-term with Colleen. Mm-hmm. That is nice that they kept in contact, even, you know, not living in their home. That's nice to, to yeah, have Yeah, I thought that was really sweet because, I mean, she did move around and some of her situations not so shiny and bright. Mm-hmm. So the ones that really did make an impact on her I thought that was great that she was still able to have that extension of some sort of mother-daughter relationship. How disconnected that may be, it was still something for her, which is more than some people in that situation do have. Very true. Everything was looking up for Marie as she was now living on her own, had a job, and was going to school. Things were finally coming together for the teen until one night someone in a blink of an eye took that security from her. Marie had been living on her own for about six months when on August 11, 2008, in the middle of the night, Marie was sexually assaulted at knife point. Marie would report this incident to the police after she called a few friends first. She would tell the reporting officer that the man in a black mask with a backpack broke into her apartment, held a knife that he took from her kitchen to her throat, tied her hands and mouth up with her shoelaces, blindfolded her, then proceeded to rape her for about 10 to 15 minutes. Then before leaving, taking several photos of her. And I will note, one of the officers asked her, how do you know that they took photos of you? Which just set me off. 
Yeah, I mean, even if you're blindfolded, one, like, you could hear it, Mm -hmm. potentially, depending on the camera. Also, like, if there's a flash or, you know, like, you just know. And in her situation, it was a flash. It was more of, like, one of those older school cameras that would, yeah. return. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it would, like, print out the pictures as it went through. So she definitely saw, like, a flash or something, regardless if she was blindfolded. Exactly, and heard it. Yeah. Especially with, like, your senses, not all of your senses are working. So if you're blindfolded, your other senses are, are going to be heightened. Exactly. Especially in a those. situation like this. Yeah. You're going to gravitate to things that you can focus on to kind of disconnect from everything else mm-hmm. going on for sure. That's a good point. She then would be asked to repeat her story to the lead investigator when they arrived. After she reported her story to that officer, she was then transported over to the hospital to perform a rape exam, where again she would be asked to tell her story. Preceding the exam, she would be brought back in for questioning again and asked her to tell her story one more time. If you haven't been keeping up, this is now already four times in less than 24 hours after a traumatizing attack. Before being released, she was asked to write everything down that she had stated so that they had a written statement in her words as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely terrible that this situation even occurred, but this does remind me of a Law & Order episode, SVU, and it was like a semi-newer one to where a girl had been raped, but then she was like vlogging about it. And they thought it was weird, but she was vlogging, like, how many times she had to, like, tell other people. And Mm -hmm. moral of the story is, like, I think that is common because, you know, you have to tell the responding officer they are probably not assigned to your case. They're they're Mm -hmm. probably just, you know, in the neighborhood and they responded. So then you have to tell the detective and then the rape exam. So I understand it's a shame that we don't have a better system, but... I I knew that that was kind of commonplace. Yeah, I mean, it really is unfortunate that that having to retell your trauma over and over instead of someone, I don't know, passing notes along or figuring out a way to record that information without having to re-traumatize the victim of reliving that situation Mm -hmm. would definitely be steps in a better direction, in my opinion. But how we get there, I'm not sure either. Yeah. When she finally got home, her group home really rallied behind her, letting her know they loved, support her, loved and supported her, and they would do anything to help assist her during this time in need. She stayed with a roommate while her new apartment was getting done, and this is when she would call and tell Colleen what happened. Colleen did not hesitate to rush over and see her and check in. She helped Marie replace some of her old items that the police took for evidence and get her situated in her new apartment. Colleen couldn't help but notice, though, that Marie's behavior was quite strange and acting as if nothing had happened. So much so that she reached out to Marie's other foster mother, Judith, to express her concern. They both shared the same reaction to Marie's behavior. Judith then took this to another level, though. She called the police to tell them about the strange behavior and the quote-unquote gut feeling she had about Marie and why she was reporting this unfortunate event. And I say unfortunate in quotation marks if you didn't catch my drift there. (laughs) The police would then go and interview Marie's friend and ex-boyfriend, Connor. This was one of the people I mentioned earlier that she had called before calling the police. Mm -hmm. It was actually Connor, Judith, and then one of her roommates slash friends in the group home that came over to just kind of be with her during that situation. Mm -hmm. Obviously very panicked and disoriented. Just needed someone else to be there with her. Mm -hmm. 
The two did previously date, but they were just friends at the current time, but very close. After Connor's questioning, the police became more concerned with Marie's story after Connor revealed two different versions or new items that came up that previously were not discussed or stated by Marie. Marie was asked to meet again after this new information was brought forward. She is asked to tell her story again. Now they press her on the inconsistencies and why people like Connor and her foster mother Judith don't believe what had happened to her. I found this particularly messed up because not only did they say that those two people she trusted and were in her circle didn't believe her, but they threw their names out and Connor never formally came out and said that he didn't believe her. He just stated what his story was to her and it didn't perfectly align with everyone else's. So they just told her that he didn't believe her either. Yeah, this case does sound familiar, but... I'm confused as to why Colleen thinks she's lying because she's not, sounds like, a terrible wreck and on the couch and can't get up. Yeah, I don't think Colleen necessarily didn't think something didn't happen to her. I think she just thought the behavior she was displaying was particularly unusual for what she thought someone yeah but you don't know exactly and like we got to put ourselves in the perspective this was back 2008 and understanding what people whether they're grieving traumatized um are victims of something horrific happening to them not understanding that everybody's gonna process differently Mm -hmm. and some people they have to act like nothing happened some people it's a way of protection exactly some people will grieve internally some people will grieve outwardly so it's one of those situations where she didn't feel like she was acting appropriately for the situation and that kind of ended there with Colleen but Judith did take it to the next level to kind of share and express that concern with the police department which in my opinion was not needed and yeah. a, there's already a lot of hesitation with people coming forward as victims for this specific reason. Yeah. I'm not sure why you would share that with the police department, in my opinion. Exactly, yeah. They proceeded to throw her past in the mix and explain why they would understand how someone with a past like hers would want to make something up like that to get attention because they were lonely, etc., etc. They pushed and pushed and pushed until Marie breaks down and admits that she was lying. They ask her to write another statement on what she had just told them. Marie then tells them that she's pretty sure what happened happened to her and that she took her previous statement that she was lying back. The police, now frustrated, threatened to arrest her for making a false report which forces Marie to quickly comply and write the statement of the latest version of events. As she makes her way back to the group home after her police visit, the community that once rallied for her turned against her just as quick. Marie was placed on restrictions at her group home and was not able to see her previous foster father without having someone else present in fear that she would, quote, lie about him as well, end quote and couldn't take that risk as they were foster families. And any negative report on a foster family, just for reference, can risk them at being put on probation or not being able to house children at all. Things got so bad that Marie even contemplated suicide on several occasions. Wow, that is super unfortunate. I'm also so, so very upset because it's like this one little thing, this really person's opinion, Judith going to the police and saying like, oh, I don't know, I have doubts that this may have even happened. 
now has destroyed her life. Exactly. It like it one sliver of this whole thing escalated it to a situation to where now she doesn't have that community of support that she once had. She is not being, being outcast. Yeah, she's being outcast and not treated with the comfort and support that she needs during this time and really I mean exiled in her community and when you have no one that will believe you or support you it goes to the point of what's the point well it's just another trauma to add on to an existing trauma exactly well hold on to your thoughts and opinions and let's move forward to 2011 in golden colorado where a 22 year old amber stevenson would be the next victim in this case Amber, too, would have someone break into her home and force her to dress up and act like a child, but also dressing her up like a hooker. It was very kind of childlike, but also sexy in a way. Uh, Very disturbing. I I really don't know how else to describe that, but yeah. He would then proceed to rape her for four hours on and off. In between his starts and stops, she would talk to him and try to keep him talking to save her own life. She got to know a lot about this man, and she would remember every single detail, including a unique birthmark on the lower part of one of his legs. After her attack, he would take everything that he touched and forced her to shower and wash herself off. He would then proceed to strip everything from her room. Although he did notice that she was cold, and before leaving, he would throw a blanket at her to warm her up. One of the details she did disclose to the detective was that he was very gentle at times of where he would almost be like caring and caring for her which is very very odd behavior yeah really disturbing kind of like it's obviously you can't care for a person when you're raping them but it's like this yeah and raping them for four hours like what Ugh, very, very disturbing. I'm glad that she got a lot of information, and it it sounded like maybe she almost had a connection with him, and I'm sure she was trying to do that in order, like, if I don't, he might kill me. Mm -hmm. So I think hopefully that'll help them catch him. We will see. Amber's experience with the police would be very different than Marie's. To begin, her officer was a woman who made sure that Amber was comfortable and in a safe environment away from others where she felt comfortable to tell her story to Detective Karen Duvall. Through her retelling, they were able to identify her attacker spoke several languages, estimated height and weight description, and of course the birthmark detail I mentioned earlier. Amber told police that her attacker said that this was his first rape, but she did not believe him, and the main reason that pushed her to report her attack is that she felt very strong that he would do it again. Detective Duvall would walk Amber through the next steps of what was to come after she finished reporting. She was there each step of the way for Amber and was able to help subside some of the anxiety from Amber during this process. So I'm curious, and I'm sure you mentioned, but... Was this another town, city, state? I know that the first one was in 2008 and the second one was 2011, but how far apart 
Yes, so the first attack was in Washington, and this one was in Golden, Colorado. Oh, So okay. different state, different city, different everything. So yes to all is the above. Is Golden, Colorado with Amber, is that like a smaller town? Yes. Okay, so I can kind of see how, unfortunately, maybe in like a larger city, police officers, not that they don't care, but they may not have the time or the resources to like go through you know mm-hmm. every step of the way whereas in well Amber's i case, guess you could think of that both ways though because i would think if you're larger you have so many more cases that's true but for like a larger city you know they may have like 20 cases that they're working on and they're like they see rapes and killings like every day so mm-hmm. they're kind of like whatever more trained i guess yeah yeah, and I guess that smaller town connection, maybe I could see, but I can kind of see. And obviously, we would want Amber's case, like for anybody that had to go through that, obviously, that would be the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think, I think it's more common to just like pass the cases off. Yeah, I, I agree. Now, Duval was married to another police officer who worked in a different county, and after telling him the details of her case, it sprung him to bring up another case from his office in a different district than her. Another female detective was working a rape case very similar to Duval's. After hearing this, she connected with Grace Rasmussen, and they compared notes. They came to the conclusion that they were most likely looking at the same man, even though their victimology was quite different. The woman attacked in Detective Ramusen's case was an older black woman in her 60s. They began to try to connect other cases similar to this attack and were able to find other cases in that same mannerism. Now, Bryn, do you know why they were trying to connect cases to support their cause? Well, I would assume more possible evidence. Yes, but also they wanted to get the FBI involved. Oh. When you have a series of cases in different counties, it forces the FBI to get that interdistrict connection together. States and everything. Mm -hmm. The search for their suspect began, and they were particularly aggressive in their efforts as he had no single type of victim. He would attack young women, older women, any race, as long as they lived alone and was able to stalk them long enough to know their patterns of behavior and took advantage of them when they were most vulnerable. They also ran into the case that their suspect would leave virtually no DNA evidence behind. The most they were able to collect from any of the scenes was a couple skin cells, but not even enough to do a full DNA profile on. Frustrating, right? Oh, yeah. Now, I want to circle back to Marie's case around this same time as the Golden case started ramping up. Someone had leaked her name to the media. Now she was everywhere. Her name, base, address, and phone number was all over the news. She could not escape this never-ending nightmare. And on top of that, now she was being charged for false reporting. A charge so ridiculous that her public defender could not even believe that she was being charged with it. She pled and settled in court and received a $500 fine and was placed on parole. That makes me so upset when this is now three years later and her life is still being destroyed. Also, I thought that they said like, oh, we're going to charge you with false reporting if you don't. Yeah, so to go back a little bit, and I wasn't going to touch on this just to like not make this episode a whole series as well, but she did go through several times of I did it. Going I, back and forth. I, it, I lied, I didn't lie, I lied, I didn't lie. So then ultimately they said, 
because of the headache that you gave us, we're charging you with false reporting. And I mean, to the point that her public defender was like, did you lie about somebody? Did you threaten something? Like, I don't ever see these cases. How mad did you make (laughs) Exactly. Like, he could not believe it. And it just, like, lit me up. Now let's go back to the other rape cases. They were really starting to gain exposure in the public eye. So much so that Colleen, as I mentioned, that was one of Marie's past foster mothers, saw the case on the news. It chilled her so much how many details, descriptions, and other things were very similar to Marie's case. She confronted her about it and told her that she needed to tell the police what really happened. Marie then declines that anything happened once again and that she did make it all up. Colleen, not buying Marie's story this time, called the cops about her case as a possible connection to the other victims as well. Okay, now I'm mad again. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Okay. I know Colleen is trying to help now, but it's like, for me, it's like, you're too late. Like, you already done messed this up, Colleen. Yes. For me. Well, no, the first one was Judith. But Colleen started it, so it's really Colleen. I know you're, like, Colleen's number one fan, but, like, no, I'm not Colleen. <laughs> At least she did do her due diligence of, like, hey, there's a connection here, too. Yeah, I, I, she is trying to help, but it's, like, really? Yeah, and all the other cases were so... Like, different states, different districts, different cities. Like, everything was different. He never hit the same place twice. So, I guess I'm wondering what was similar about them then. Because they were all so different. Yes. I'm uh, about to touch on all of that. But, essentially, he would bring, like, a rape backpack. Wow. To all of the victims' places where it had ties, ropes, condoms, etc., All of that was the same. The first thing that he would say when he would see his victims was say anything and I'll kill you. And he would always have something threatening them, whether that be a knife, said he had a gun, actually Mm. had a gun. The escalation came from the length and the weapons that he had, not necessarily the formalities. Um, And he did start to clean up his act as he was progressing because, I mean, with practice, he got better at doing this and getting away with it for quite some time yeah so if they would have done their due diligence at the beginning it could have been stopped but since Marie's case was not taken seriously it just he continued to progress and progress and progress and get really great at his craft that this dumb luck of a cop being married to a cop in a different district that connected these cases and he actually I don't know listened to another cop's case yeah. and what was going on like the chances of all of this lining up is so minimal and crazy that it's even astonishing that we got to this point yeah okay so now let's go back to our big investigation The FBI and local police were working on the case and had major traction with several similar cases Every case had the same layout with different levels of escalations. Every attack had been done in different districts, which is why no one knew just how big of a case that this would end up being unfolding to be. And like I had mentioned, if Detective Duvall was not married to another cop in a different district, we might not even be here telling you this story today. And if that doesn't tell you something about how police communicate from district to district, not even state to state, I think don't know if you caught that. I don't even know what else to say. 
This case took them all the way to Kansas, where there was a string of sexual assaults that had peaked at a college campus. Through this evidence, Detective Duvall discovered a how-to rape guide that was sold on the black market. This book was used to train cops on what to look for to catch rapists, but the black market gave it a different layout and look. Um, not sure they oh, wow. fully understood that when they put it together. I mean, good that tools you're giving could be, the, yeah. yes, oh, like good God. tools could be put to good use, but just make sure you have the appropriate exposure and access to the people that need them for sure. Yeah. As their evidence started to pour in, their suspects started to look more and more like a cop. Grace and Karen both know that when a cop is involved in an investigation, things start to get pretty messy. So they got creative on how to collect the information by soliciting different districts in different ways. One of them being a call out for all veteran military police officers to give them a shout out via email or starting an interdistrict softball league. Just a few things. Gotta love the creativity there. But these leads led them in the right direction, and they were able to narrow down their suspect list, leading them to one person that was in connection with the background information given from the victims. Surveillance footage of a suspicious vehicle reported in the area where the rapes were and the angle that it was a cop. Police would track down Michael O'Leary and be able to take and collect his DNA evidence after he went out to eat one day. Now, although all the crime scenes were thoroughly cleaned up, and virtually leaving no DNA behind, there was enough at a couple of the scenes to complete a Y DNA test. This is a very limited test though. It can only be conducted on men as they have the Y chromosome and it cannot pinpoint to a particular person, only a family line. So for example, if two brothers were tested, their results would be the exact same as they came from the same family lineage. Mm, that's interesting. I've never heard of a Y DNA test before. Yeah, it definitely cuts down the suspect pool by 50% because it is only a male. And then it can connect you to a certain family, but not a specific person. So it can be useful in cases like this. Yeah, especially if you have nothing else. Exactly. This test was a match and the police were able to search the house where they realized Michael had a brother named Mark. They were able to narrow down their suspect pool from two to one by the identifying birthmark on Mark's lower leg. After searching their homes, there was no doubt they had found their guy. They had photos, videos, a rape bag full of condoms, ropes, etc., and a hidden box full of all of the victims' underwear. The police were able to charge Mark with 28 counts of sexual assault, kidnapping, and stalking. I will say the ladies got creative here and charged him with rapes for every time he penetrated their victims throughout the hours that he raped them to ensure that the charges would stick and he would be off the streets. And I'm happy to report that it worked. Currently, Mark is serving 327 and a half years in prison. Wow. Okay, I didn't know that they could do that. But going back to, I guess it doesn't really matter now because they got the right guy. But I'm curious with the search warrant, and they thought it was Michael first, right? Michael Mm -hmm. was the cop. Yes, so Michael was the cop, and that's why they were able to connect him. But they did not realize that Michael lived with his brother, Mark. Okay, so and because it was the same house, that's how they were able to search 
literally the whole house for any evidence, not like any possessions for Michael. Yeah, so it really kind of worked in twofold that the DNA test not only let them secure that search warrant, but it was able to connect them to both of them because they could not pinpoint one or the other. So they were able to search the entire home and everyone's property because they did all fall under that Y DNA test and didn't have to pinpoint certain things in certain areas I of the house. I see. Okay. And did they find the photos of Marie? I thought she would never ask. As the police went through the evidence in Mark's home, they found photos of each of their victims. And you will never believe who they found in some of those photos. Yes, Miss Marie Adler was one of his victims. Grace called the police officer working the case to inform him. And of course, he accused her of connecting the wrong case to the wrong connection. And it was not until that she sent the photos over to him that he believed her. Stop. <laughs> yeah, because a female getting it right is yeah. just not possible. It was not until then that he realized the damage that they had caused Murray. The officer, who I'm choosing not to speak his name because he is irrelevant to this case of fierce women who forced this case wide open to confront Marie in person to tell her what had happened and give her a whopping $500 check to reimburse her for her ticket and her time. Uh-uh. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> he need to pay for damages? The $500? What year is this now? Where's the inflation? No, 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 no. <laughs> no well well you have the right idea now marie did not just sit back and let this happen and be the end of her story she would sue the police department and end up settling hundred and fifty thousand dollars which in my opinion is still not enough but i understand why after my research that she didn't want to drag this out and make it a whole event she wanted them to acknowledge what they did and settling did that for her so honestly the strength that it took for her to move on speaks volumes to her character yeah, I would agree. I don't think $150,000 is enough for... Because what year is this now? So she settled in 2013. And just a reminder that her initial case started back in 2008. Yeah, so $150,000 I don't think is enough from 2008 to 2013. Five years. But I do also understand that she's already been through enough. And I'm sure she like never wanted to see a courthouse or a police officer again in her entire life but wow yeah and i really think in this situation it speaks volumes to really understanding how hard it is for people to speak up when they are victimized um, when they are attacked because of the situations that they're put in this case is really like sets a precedent of what could happen if you don't take people seriously and it's unfortunate that we have to use marie as an example but it isn't a reminder of it is not often that victims come in and lie about their case to lie about their attacks to destroy their credibility and really gain there's nothing to gain out of it yeah (laughs) unless that situation fits that description i'm not saying it never happens but the times it does is so far and few in between like minute exactly and if someone was doing that i would also want to turn and understand why because at that point there's something reason exactly there's some other reason that they are doing that 
to kind of gain your attention and perspective on what else is going on. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, either way, it should be taken very seriously and not to the level of charging them with false reporting and doing nothing but ruining a person's life. Yeah, well that, and I'm sure she received so many more threats because her information was released to the public. But I just really want to say like, you do not know unless you've been in that situation. Honestly, even if you have been in that situation, you could take two different people, have the exact same trauma happen to them, and those two different people are probably going to react and grieve very differently. differently. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. different steps. Part of trauma and grief, one is denial. You know, mm-hmm. like you go through these separate steps of trauma and trying to process and grieve and everything like that. And those don't happen in a particular order or in a certain day or time frame. So like you literally cannot say, oh, if that happened to me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do, do this. this. Exactly. Because you don't know. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point of these two women were treated very differently. I mean, things in Amber's case could have been very, very different and we would have never found out who this horrible person was. And things in Marie's case could have gone very different and they could have handled it professionally and appropriately at the beginning where we didn't have all these other victims and someone was being charged for 28 counts of rape and assault and stalking. Mm -hmm. But it's those differences that make a whole lot of impact. And I think it's really important to touch on what you just said of like every person is going to handle situations differently. Everyone's going to report things differently. Some people can remember miles and miles of details where some people black out just to get through that trauma. Mm -hmm. So you can't judge off an interaction, off of a situation. And I think it's so, so important to really take these things seriously to where people don't feel like they're going to be questioned or blamed or thought out as liars when they're reporting things like this because that's half the hesitation of doing it. So if we change that, that stigma and that thought process going in, things on the back end could be cleaned up and fixed a lot quicker in my opinion. Absolutely. Agree. And with that, we conclude this episode. We'd love to hear your feedback. Leave us a comment or review. If you have a case suggestion, reach out through our website at logostories.com. You can also check out all the source materials and help information from this episode while you're there. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at logostories. We will be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay safe out there. It's a weird world. Thank you to Alexander Nakarada for allowing us to use his sound, Nightmare, for our theme music.